Well, good morning, Living Water. It's good to see everyone out this morning. Thank you for being here in our worship service. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Today we're reading verses 10 through 17 to finish off this chapter. And then once you find that, if you wouldn't mind standing as I read the word of God aloud. Picking up verse 10 in the ESV, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with gratitude in our hearts and thanksgiving. We thank you for bringing us together today and for the privilege of hearing your word, which many desire around this world but do not have access to. As we prepare our hearts to hear the message, Lord, through this instrument, we ask that you would guide our hearts and minds to be open and receptive to what your spirit says to us through what your apostle wrote so many years ago. Lord, it has been some time since I've been up here, and so I ask that you would take uh, this instrument and knock the dust off um, so that I can communicate clearly to your people. Uh, that the name of Jesus may be honored, that those who are believers may stand firm in their faith, that those who may be wavering may be encouraged to continue in the faith, and that those who are lost might be found. We ask these things for your glory alone, in the name of your Son, whom you raised from the dead, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Many of you may remember a story, a news story that, uh, that was in the headlines back in 2015 um, because it had to do with our faith. First Liberty uh, Institute, uh, who is a legal defense firm, uh, picked up the case, and on their website they retell the events of the case, and I'll just kind of cite them to you. Uh, it was about Coach Kennedy. Um, now, for many of you, just in case you don't remember him specifically, he had spent uh, 18 years serving in the Marines, and after that, uh, as a second career, he decides to become a, a high school football coach at Bremerton High School, or BHS uh, for short, in Washington State, and he was the coach of the varsity football team. 
And before he began coaching his very first game, for those in the room who are coaches, uh, he, he made as a believer a commitment to God uh, in his heart, or maybe he verbalized that commitment, I, I don't know, that he would give thanks uh, at the conclusion of every game for what the team had accomplished and for God allowing him to have influence uh, in these young men's lives uh, through the, the avenue of football. So after his first game in 2008, uh, he took a knee quietly and prayed. And in his prayer, he gave thanks to God. Now, these prayers were, were not lengthy prayers like sometimes uh, we might pray or like I grew up in church where the deacon would pray. Uh, it seemed like unendingly. Uh, th these prayers were short prayers, about, about 15 to, to 30 seconds. Uh, and, and Coach Kennedy was consistent in this practice after every game for seven years. Now, initially, when he started, like most things, when we get started with something, we're kind of the only one that's doing it. So he would go to the middle of the field, kneel down, and offer a short prayer up quietly after everything was over and pretty much people were leaving and, and, and heading out. And after several games, some of the students, even though they were getting to leave, they noticed that the coach was in the middle of the field and uh, that he was praying, and so they decided to start to join him on some occasions. And eventually this uh, turned into a kind of a, you know, this kind of little gathering at times because the players would then sometimes after the game invite some of the players from the opposing team or whoever they were playing to come in and join them as well, as well, and they would pray. And when they asked him at first, hey, Coach Kennedy, can we join you? He just simply said to them, hey, this is a free country. You can do what you want to do, and he didn't forbid them from joining him as he gave his prayer and offered it to God. Now, there are occasions when no one joined him. There are times when others did. And as time passed, of course, and others start to get into it on various occasions, sometimes afterwards he would give a short speech to them, and sometimes it had religious material in it, but he never forced them or coerced them to join him or said they had to be part of some religious event or anything like that. Uh, and then he would pray, and that was kind of how things happened. Well, well seven years later in 2015, uh, there was an employee from another school who, who noticed what was going on and went to the pr principal of BHS High School and talked to him, the principal about what was happening with Coach Kennedy. And so on September 17, 2015, the superintendent sent Coach Kennedy a letter in which it explained to him that the district would now be investigating him and see if he had appropriately complied with the school board's policy about religious-related activities and practices. Through some events that transpired, and I don't have time to get into, this ultimately led to the school issuing a new policy that prohibited Coach Kennedy and any other employee from getting into any kind of religious behaviors that was demonstrative to others. Basically, they were forbidding public prayer. But they did make a concession uh, in their new policy, and that was that Coach Kennedy could pray so long as it was in, in private, away from the eyes of any students and parents, and it could be on campus, but just in an isolated place. After some back and forth about what was co constitutionally pro uh, protected, Coach Kennedy was released from employment on November 20th, 2015. This incited a seven-year court battle, which ultimately ended up 
at the end of last year being heard by the Supreme Court. And this past October, the ABC News, of course, reported the reversal of many lower court decisions in a 6-3 to three ruling in favor of Coach Kennedy saying that the school violated the coach's free speech and free exercise rights by barring him from doing so. Living the kind of life that flows from having faith in Christ Jesus can prove to be challenging for believers. And this is due to us encountering opposition, not only in public spaces like our places of employment, but sometimes we run into this opposition in our churches, our communities, and our homes. Perhaps you could consider the evidence in the lives of people around you with whom you're familiar with in one way or another. A friend or perhaps a family member has strayed from following the Lord because of some form of challenge or another. Now, knowing about the struggles of others does not exempt us individually from having to fight the good fight of faith for ourselves. See, the reality is we all have to make repeated decisions throughout our, the course of our lives to follow the Lord. And in this text, the Lord encourages us through the words of the Apostle Paul to stay on the yellow brick road. But he's not encouraging us to go see the wizard, but instead to travel the path that leads a Christian to the celestial city. Now, our text today divides nicely into two sections from which I want to draw two points about staying on the path of following Jesus Christ. We'll see the first in verses 10 through 13 and the second in verses 14 through 17. Let me begin by stating the first idea up front simply by saying endure in the hard times. Endure in the hard times. Let's return to the text. Beginning at verse 10, Paul is now transitioning or he transitioned from his warning about people who had been indulging in ungodliness to the lifestyle that Timothy was to display or was displaying in Ephesus. We find out from the text that it is one that has been patterned after Paul's own life, uh, who is a chief disciple of the Lord Jesus. We almost hear the, the faint echo of Paul's word to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you want to know what that included, you can pick that up in verses 10 and 11 as Paul na names a bunch of things of what this entails to imitate his lifestyle. Now, one of the things that stood out to me about Paul from these descriptions is that Paul did not wander through life like I did after high school for years, trying to figure out what my purpose and aim was in life. And maybe some of you know what it's like to wander through life. That was not Paul's case. case. Uh, after the risen Lord encountered him and confronted him on the road to Damascus uh, in Acts 9, 22 and 26, it is, is retold, Paul then committed his life to strategically accomplish his God-ordained mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, as we know from his writings, there was this hope that Jews might be saved as well along the way. Uh, in our reading of, of going through Romans, we encountered one of his restatements of his mission when he said this, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul worked tirelessly with the aid of others who were around him, 
And as he worked towards this mission, this goal of his life, this aim for which he was pressing, he had to endure persecution and suffering. If you're, if you're looking for something to read in your devotional time this week, if you want to recount the events, I encourage you to read through Acts chapters 13 and 14 to get the details of his missionary journey and some of the things that happened. Professor Kostenberger sums up some of those key things for us just as a preview of what happens. He says, this persecuted, persecution involved verbal abuse, expulsion from the region, swaying others against Paul, and even conspiracy. And in the end, Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city, and people thought he was dead. But if you notice in the text, Paul says, in an air of hope, yet the Lord rescued me from all my persecutions and sufferings. We might ask, how? Well, if you read through Acts, you'll find that on one occasion, the Lord allowed them to discover a plot against his group, and they were able to use that information to escape in time. And on the case when he was stoned, at least in this case, if he was dead, the Lord restored his life, and Paul survived so that he could continue with the mission that God had assigned him. Now, Paul goes on to state something which is of interest to us, those in the room who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus in this present evil age. Verses 12 and 13, look at the text with me. Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul writes to Timothy, uh, his son in, in the faith and in ministry, and he wanted to know, wanted him to know that what he had experienced in ministry, Timothy should expect also to ex experience in ministry because he was walking along the same path that Paul was on. And in light of them, we should expect the same if we're walking along that path. Because following Christ comes at a cost. Paul says in the text that cost is persecution and suffering. But there's something else that he names in the text that I, I would say is also a cost. So does coming come by living by the evil standards of this age. But the price here for those who live by an evil standard of this age, notice what he says the price is they pay. It's a price of being deceived, which I would argue is a much higher price to think that you're right when you're actually wrong in light of the fact of final judgment and eternity. The price of deception is far too high a price to pay. What Paul says to Timothy is he endured. Timothy needed to endure, and thereby we must endure. See, living as a citizen of heaven on earth with people who abhor the values of the kingdom of God will result in us meeting with resistance to varying degrees in this life. Coach Kennedy is one example of what that looks like. If you want some others of what it might look like, simply look at believers in other countries around the world and you'll find various examples of what that resistance can look like. But with this knowledge in mind and knowing this, we ought to then have the expectation that as we seek to live godly lives, we're going to meet resistance. 
especially when we refuse to adopt the cultural's definition of what it means to be human. When we refuse to adopt the redefining of marriage, when we refuse to adopt the redefinition of what truth is, and we refuse to relegate our faith to the private practice so that others will not see it, but we bring it into the public sector, or when we refuse to compromise the moral standards that God has laid out in his word. Brothers and sisters, you're going to meet, I'm going to meet resistance. So in one survey that I came across, one person was reviewing, hey, why is it that people are not coming to church anymore? And they asked a number of people why they weren't coming to church. And some of the reasons that they listed of why they stopped coming to church is because of some of the very things that I just mentioned. Because the church held to some things that put others out. They said, hey, I'm not going to hold up to the moral standards that the church, I don't like the moral standards that the church wants to hold up to. And in, in light of that, I don't want to go to church anymore. Of course, this is alongside things like churches don't serve donuts either. <laughs> so they stopped coming to church. So that's why we have refreshments. <laughs> <laughs> At least they won't be able to say we didn't serve them something nice. <laughs> See, some will not approve of us being different because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And the word for us when we encounter those times, when we meet resistance because of faith in Jesus Christ, is endure. If we're to stay on the path to the celestial city, we must endure hardship. That's what Paul said in Acts 14. And if you notice from the text, what Paul says that this requires when he listed about his life, it requires patience and steadfastness. Sometimes it requires that, it requires that of you when you're in your home and you're trying to live a godly life and your spouse, your children are not. Sometimes it's in your office when you're seeking to live a godly life and others around you are not, or sometimes it's in your community. But whatever situation you find yourself in, you need to be patient and steadfast. But here's the good news from the text. Just as the Lord was with Paul in his sufferings, he's with you and yours. Remember what the Lord said, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In the midst of hard times, in the midst when you're facing resistance, you're not alone. Christ is in the struggle with you. But there's something else in the text that I don't want us to miss before moving on, and it's this, and I found this in my own life to happen. We may feel that when we try to honor the Lord in one way or another, and it results in life becoming more difficult to us, that we start to feel inwardly that we've made the wrong decision. But suffering doesn't mean you've blundered. Paul and Timothy, who were serving the Lord faithfully, faced hard circumstances. Sometimes the mark that you're on the right path is that you're suffering and that you're meeting resistance. Now, sometimes we can see this play out in the lives of others that hint us in that direction. Many of you may remember the well-known story of Cornelia Tenbaum from the, her well-known book, The Hiding Place. Now, and I was reminded of the story not because I was reading it, but because my wife uh, this summer, as she does often in the summers when she's off from homeschooling the kids, uh, decides to read through Christian, uh, historic Christian biographies to encourage her in her faith. And this was one of the, the stories or lives that she uh, had a chance to read this summer. And she was just telling me about her life and what was happening that reminded me of it. Now, for those who, who might not have it fresh in their minds, uh, Corey and her family were Dutch Christians that helped in World War II to save some estimated 800 lives of Jews and German soldiers who were defecting. 
Eventually, of course, uh, they were arrested and placed into concentration camps. Now, one of the stories that stood out to me that my wife shared was how Corey and her sister smuggled a Bible into a concentration camp. While they were being uh, interned or brought into this concentration camp, uh, she prayed to God that he would allow them to get his word, this Bible, the small Bible they had, into the, into the camp. Now, of course, they had to be inspected because Bibles were outlawed. They couldn't have them. And so in the process, upon entering the camp because of the way things happened with the women, because this was a, a, a women's camp uh, that they were being brought into, uh, it was a, a process I won't go into the details of, but they ended up having to hide the Bible in the showers to start off with, and they had that idea. And then after retrieving the Bible from the showers, they were given very thin garments to put on a, a dress, and she did the best to hide the small Bible uh, under her dress. And as she was walking through the line praying, uh, knowing that the women were being patted down, that, that she would probably be exposed and the consequences for having contraband here in a concentration camp. Well, in the line, as the, 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 the officer was getting to the woman in front of her, he searched her three times. And then it became Corey's turn. And it was, when it, was, it was her turn to be searched for some unknown reason. The guard simply just looked at her and in a, a, a voice of frustration simply said, move along, you're holding up the line. And then he went on to search her sister, who was a person behind her. They finally got into their barracks where they were kept at with this Bible that they had. And because they were very devoted Christians and had lived that kind of life all the way up to this point, every night they would hold Bible study and prayer for the women who were in their barracks. Now, that was outlawed and the guards would check, but their barracks were infested, infested with fleas. And because they were infested with fleas, none of the guards would ever check their barracks, which then allowed them to do Bible study every night and have prayer. Then on December 28, 1944, for some unknown reason, Corey was summoned to the commander's office and simply released for the concentration camps. She later learned that this was because there had been a clerical error. And only a week after being released, all the women who were in her age group were taken to the gas chambers. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we do what is right and we're going to meet resistance. And it's in those times that we need to endure because that is the path of following Jesus, because the Lord is with you even in the hard times. The other way for us to remain on the path to the celestial city is to keep believing and obeying the scriptures. Keep believing and obeying the scriptures. We'll find this in verses 14 through 17. So let me ask you a question. What do Tyler Vela? Megan Phelps, Derek Webb, Dave Goss, Marty Sampson, Nicole Mitchell, John Steingart, Paul Maxwell, Brady Goodwin, Joseph Solomon, Joshua Harris, and Bart Ehrman all have in common? They were former Christians. They were church attendees, apologists pastors, musicians, and even Christian professors. 
and we could add other names to the list. Some have become anti-evangelists. Others have moved into lifestyles of immorality. And like the false teachers of Paul's day in the past and those swayed by them, these have strayed from the path. And this indicates that there is still a great need for this admonition from Paul to keep believing and obeying the Scriptures. Now, I'm sure that most of us might ask, well, why did they leave? New Testament scholar Scott McKnight did months of research in preparing to write for a book that he was a part of on this very topic. And so he read countless stories of those who had deconverted. And in his conclusion, in this article he wrote on Christianity Today, he said this, and I found it interesting. He said this, after months of study, my conclusion at the end of my study is that a person apostatizes or leaves the faith to find independence. This autonomy can be intellectual, psychological, or moral, or behavioral, or more than one or all of them. My study leads me to believe we should be looking through the statements of someone like Marty Sampson to what he wants to do, how he wants to behave, and to whom he wants to answer. He's looking for independence for something. Now, in his research, he, he found out that one or nearly all, there's always a combination of five kind of core elements that lead to a person's core crisis in the viability of, of one's orthodox Christian faith. And, and these are listed on the screen. And it's either one of them or all of them or a combination of some of them. One, Scripture is in tension with one believes what Scripture is or ought to be. Science and faith in a war with one another. Christian hypocrisy. Hell as taught as eternal conscience punishment and torture. And the God of the Bible, specifically in reference to the Old Testament, usually. And it's one of those five or a combination of those five things that lead a person to a crisis of faith at least in the Western world. Yet now in the article, one of the things I found positive is that he holds out hope as he quotes this, and I'll, I'll share it with you, about sometimes what happens in people's lives who do step off the path. He said not all who experience this intellectual incoherence abandon their faith permanently. Timothy Larson, a professor at Wheaton, has detailed the stories of seven intellectuals who not only endured a crisis of faith that shook their faith, but who also, once on the other side of the fence, experienced another crisis, a crisis of doubt that led them back to their orthodox faith. His book, Crisis of Doubt, remains an enduring reminder that walking away can be followed up eventually by returning home. Some have strayed, but some have returned. If you have a child who's in college or going to college, uh, there was a book that I came across uh, by the president of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, Dr. Michael Kruger, uh, you can look it up. He, it's, it's letters that he wrote to his daughter so that she wouldn't lose her faith in college and how to endure. You can check it out and look it up on Google, but that's a good recommendation if you have someone who is going to college or is struggling in their faith in college. I recommend you purchase that book for them. Now, similar observations may have been happening in Paul's time of his own day as he watched the lives of some believers as they had endured challenges to their faith. And maybe that's why he was writing this to Timothy. Remember, the people that he was addressing most likely were who were erring were elders, and they were swaying different people 
in the church. And so Paul urges Timothy by way of command to continue living based on what he had learned from the sacred scriptures at an early age. Now, if Timothy's family was following the practices that we know of that were going on in Judea and Galilee, then he would have started learning the scriptures around the age of five. Timothy was convinced over his life that these writings were from God and thus they were trustworthy and true. From the writings of the first century historian Josephus, we know that these writings were, in his words, from the Jews' perspective, justly believed to be divine. He then went on to describe which were these writings, which basically equate to our Old Testament. And so in light of what he's saying here, Paul is primarily referring to our Old Testament. Paul also told Timothy to consider not only the sacred writings, but from whom he had learned it. And using the information that we gather from this letter, we would say that would at least include his grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice, and of course, his mentor, Paul himself. Why? Because these people were people of faith and they had lived trustworthy lives. Paul then lays out for us, at least for Timothy, and we might add ourselves in here, three reasons of why we can have confidence in the Scriptures. One, Paul says to Timothy, the Scriptures have the ability to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We know from the scriptures that the apostles preached that salvation from God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So after his resurrection, the Lord used the sacred scriptures here as the writer describes them, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, to teach how the scriptures were already speaking about him and what he would accomplish in his death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead as recorded in Luke Chapter 24, verses 27 and verse 44. An understanding which he had already evidenced earlier in his ministry in John chapter 5, verse 39 and verse 46. The apostles, being good students of the Lord, then took what they had learned from the Lord and used it to preach and reason with others from the Old Testament concerning salvation that only comes through the Messiah Jesus, and we see this in a numerous, numerous chapters in Acts. If you want to find it, you'll find it in Acts chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 20, chapter 24, chapter 26, and chapter 28. I believe that they thought that the scriptures could lead to faith in Christ. See, the scriptures point us to salvation, and that salvation only comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Two, not only do the scriptures show us the way to salvation, but all scripture, as the text says, is breathed out by God. Now, the way the word is translated here, you could either have it passive or active. It's not clear, but since origin earlier in the church, we've taken this to be in the passive, and that's where the church has held it as. Uh, And so this points then to divine origin as opposed to effect. What Paul is getting at here is that God is the source of Scripture. And because God is the source, then this implies that Scripture is true and trustworthy and has authority to guide our lives. Now, this stands in direct contrast to what Paul has said in his first letter in 1 Timothy 4.1, that the teaching of the false teachers, they had a source as well. They were teaching the doctrines 
of demons. But Paul says, that's not where Scripture comes from. It comes from God. But Paul's not the only one to hold this view about Scripture. As we've heard from Josephus, Jews held this. We see this in Peter in 1 Peter 1.21 that he held that Scripture was of divine origin. And the Lord Jesus himself held that Scripture was of divine origin as we see in Mark 12.36 and John 10.35. And this view of Scripture has been held through Church history, we see it early in the writings of Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexander, all the way down in the Western church through the Reformation and even up to the present day across denominations. That scripture is from God. Now, this does not negate the fact that God worked through humans to write the Holy Scriptures. But it does let us know that they are from God. And this extends also to the New Testament. We see this played out in places like 1 Corinthians 2, 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Timothy 5, 18, and 2 Peter 3, 15, that the New Testament writers were also viewed as of divine origin. What Paul is getting at here is that the Bible source is God. How might we present an argument for those who do not agree with us about the inspiration of Scripture, that the origin of Scripture is divine? Christian philosopher and apologist Dr. Stephen Cohen has offered the following argument. I will lay out the various lines of argumentation, and then I'll talk just a moment about them. One, he says, Jesus taught that he is God incarnate. Two, God authenticated Jesus' teaching by raising him from the dead. Three, hence Jesus is God incarnate. Four, Jesus, God incarnate, taught that the Old Testament is divinely inspired and he promised the inspiration of the New Testament through his apostles. Five, therefore the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is divinely inspired. Now what's interesting about his argument is that he does not start off with the assumption that the Bible is inspired or that even the documents are reliable historical documents from antiquity. Instead, he starts from a place of employing the criteria of authenticity to, pr to prove the historical statements of Jesus and then builds evidence and his arguments based on that, which ultimately leads to the inspiration of Scripture. I don't have time today to unpack and lay out all the arguments and the evidence for each line to support that. But the idea of what the argument does is moves us to a new place, and this is what it gets us to. I believe in the Bible because I believe in Jesus, and Jesus believed that the Bible was divinely inspired. If you're interested in the article, I can share it with you. You can just email me and you can get the more details. Now, we have to realize that this argument does not erase the work that we have to do as Christians in dealing with difficult texts and issues of transmission. But it does mean that there is a way to reason, to show that those who don't agree with us of how we can get to the belief that the Bible is divinely inspired in a logical way. This brings us back to the final reason for having confidence in the Scripture. Three, all Scripture is profitable to followers of Jesus Christ because it teaches right doctrine, corrects wrong doctrine, teaches right behavior under God, and helps correct wrong or errant behavior. In this way, the Scripture equips each one of us as servants of God for every good work. 
I like the way one scholar summed it up when he wrote this. Scripture provides humanity with examples and directives on how a believer ought to live life. The greatest commandments are to love God and neighbor, and these are the good works that all Scripture equips people to do. See, brothers and sisters, the Christian life entails doing what the Lord Jesus and his apostles commanded. Obedience is part of what it means to be a Christian. I'm often reminded of this when I think back to one of the sayings that Jesus said in his earthly ministry. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Now, with those things in mind, all things considered, what's really at stake here in light of what Paul has said to us in this text? I think the Lord Jesus sums it up best, and it, it could be stated no better than this. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You say, but the way might be costly. Listen to what Jesus says in that case. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Brothers and sisters, Paul's encouragement to us is we must persevere. Stay on the path of following Jesus by enduring in hard times and continuing to believe and obey the scriptures. Let me close with a, a story I remember from my seminary days. So when I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, I um, took church history as some of my courses, the required courses that I took, and my professor at the time was John D. Hannum. And I remember in one of the lectures, he, he, he opened up and, and shared a, a personal story with, with our group in the class about a crisis of faith that he encountered while he was working on his doctorate degree. Uh, he was not in a Christian university. He was in a secular university working on his doctorate degree, and uh, from all of the critical things that he had studied about the Bible, he came to a point where he wasn't sure anymore that the Bible was God's word. And as a result of that, he knew that if he no longer believed that the Bible was God's word, that he would ultimately give up Christianity. And so in this moment of crisis and faith, uh, as he had had these intellectual struggles with the word of God, he was in this intense moment and he went home and he was sharing with his wife where he was at and all the things that he was learning and how it had brought him to a place where he wasn't sure that what he had in his hands could be trusted. And his wife, in response, I believe it was a moment of God-given wisdom where she simply asked him one question. Do you still love Jesus? To which, as he reflected on it, and he thought about it, and he molded over, he said, at the end of the day, after all of my questions that I, I cannot seem to answer and, and seem to work out in life, at the end of the day, I, I'm still drawn to Jesus. And in the midst of all of the other things, I cannot give up Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it was not giving up Jesus that ultimately led him back to being able to re-solidify his faith and work through all of his doubts and questions because he never got off the path, never lapsed into unbelief, never got into sin because he kept holding on to Jesus even when he had questions. 
brothers and sisters, I want you to know that we're going to have our day in court, in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Judge is going to sit, and on that day, you're going to find out when you've held on to faith in Jesus through the hard times and the challenges of this life, that on that day, the Supreme Judge will say to you that your faith in Jesus Christ was right, and you'll be held up and shown that what you have believed is true and trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, keep holding on to Jesus no matter what life throws at you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the testimony that this book that you have passed down through the ages is trustworthy and true and authoritative in our lives. And we know that we can trust Jesus because you raised him from the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that, Lord, as we seek to live our lives in the midst of the questions that we might have, in the midst of dark moments, in the midst of when we face resistance, in the midst of when our country tells us we're doing something wrong, that we'll continue to hold on firmly to Jesus. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to gather today and, and we, because you have made space for us in this world, that we can take our resources and pull them to, together so that we can continue to do good works so that we might have the opportunity and space in people's lives to tell them about the magnificent Messiah. And we thank you, Lord, because you have turned our hearts in, in such a way that we realize it, it is a privilege to give. And that, that we've been fortunate by your grace to be able to do that. And so we, we pray that you would bless us, Lord. Bless this church, bless our sister churches around the world and even in our local context who today who are taking up offerings to use it to serve your purposes in the world. And Lord, help us as we see in the lives of Christians throughout the centuries to be focused on our main mission in the world, to make Jesus known to everyone that you will present us with an opportunity to do that with. We thank you, Lord, now for this chance to be able to share our resources with your church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Oh,